Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Pack up all of my cares and woes. Here I go, singing lullaby by my blackbird. Where somebody waits for me, sugar sweet and honey, so is she. Bye bye, my blackbird. No one here can love or understand. So we started talking about this show a long time ago. This episode, uh, and I thought I understood at the time what kind of episode it was going to be. And in many respects, this whole idea that we're exploring today, the idea that people, for really a welter of different reasons, uh, are are unhappy in America. Oh, they don't feel safe. They don't feel, to quote Dean Martin, loved or understood. Uh, it's not a working health care system. It's not a workable climate policy. Um, minorities, uh, as you will hear today, minorities from all kinds of different groups uh, either feel directly under assault or unsupported or as though they're just waiting for a, a wave of xenophobia and, and retaliation. That There are a lot of people who are either moving out of this country or thinking really hard about moving out of this country or wondering what it would take for them to move out of this country. So we're going to explore all of that today. We heard a lot of things from different listeners. To get us going right now, though, is Deneen Brown, uh, a local enterprise reporter at The Washington Post, an associate professor at the University of Maryland, who recently wrote the article, The Case for Leaving America to Escape Racism. Deneen Brown, welcome to our show. Hello. It's great to be here. Thank you. So this, the, the article you wrote is really, really powerful, and so many of the stories uh, that you uncovered including your own story, were, well, I mean, they were. They were just, I mean, uh, stories of one couple who moved to South Africa and, and suddenly realized that they hadn't felt free uh, for the entire time that they'd been growing up and living in the United States. Maybe you could say a little bit more about the general tenor of a lot of these conversations. Yeah. Um, so I talked to, for the story, I talked to uh, a number of people who had created YouTube channels. I talked to historians and professors who told me that uh, there was, uh, there is a growing uh, community of expats living outside the United States. Uh, they're moving to places like various countries in Africa, including Ghana, Gambia, South Africa, Botswana. Uh, they're moving to various places in Central and South America. And many of them are moving um, to escape oppression, to escape racism. They're moving to experience what they say is freedom from uh, that kind of oppression. Uh, some people feel that the country has become more dangerous for Black people um, in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. 
people watched as insurrectionists stormed the Capitol. Uh, it was an extraordinary event. Uh, they watched as police were being beaten by American flags. Uh, there's a, a police being squeezed in doors and chased, and there was a noose erected on the Capitol lawn. Um, people are nervous about the banning of the teaching of true history under what is called critical race theory, which uh, simply means teaching the truth in history. They're concerned about books being banned, teachers fired, and warnings about threats to democracy, and also um, warnings about a civil war that might be impending. So there are a number of factors that are propelling people to think about leaving um, to and for people to just get on the plane and just leave. Um, So we asked a lot of our listeners to write to us or even call and leave us a voicemail. I'm going to play one for you right now. This is from Aaliyah in East Hartford, Connecticut. This is A1. In terms of the question, have I seriously considered leaving the U.S.? The answer is yes. And I think it's um, obviously recently after the election of Trump, I was really dismayed and surprised and kind of went through the, I think, seven stages of grief. But one year after his first term, I felt like I didn't think I wanted to be here for a second term. And if Biden didn't win, I was starting to look, I wanted to look for work visas in other countries. And my husband was in agreement with me on this. And honestly, I don't think it's still off the table. Our democratic institutions are under attack. Reproductive rights for women are under attack. And as a person of color, I'm still struggling with how this country refuses to holistically and proactively address racism and systemic racism and to see the disproportionate impact it still has on people of color who have contributed so much to this country. I'm really concerned about the state of our democratic republic. And although I'm proud and love being a Connecticut resident, living in a blue state, I don't know if that's going to be enough depending on the outcomes of the 2022 and 2024 elections. I'm still keeping hope alive, but I think I'm definitely mentally preparing to possibly have to throw in the towel. Hopefully not, though. All right. So you hear a lot of things there, including ambivalence. But this this could have been one of the voices from your article, right? Absolutely. That uh, is fits the general theme of, of what people were telling me during my reporting. There, I mean... There are people who love this country, but they feel that it's dangerous. They feel that um, it is a, it's a, a country that is not living up to its ideals. Um, they feel that the moral floor has, tr- has cracked. A number of people told me that um, they were concerned with the, in- what seemed to be the increase in police shootings of unarmed black men. You know, women and children, um, after George Floyd was killed, you saw anti-racism protests spill into the streets and people were demanding justice. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's many, many things right. that are propelling people to think about leaving. And th- what you just said, though, fits into what I found a, a particularly gripping story from your article. It's from your own experience in Ghana. Uh, and you had a traffic stop uh, involving a driver of a car you were in. Tell that story. 
Yeah, so I visited Ghana. Um, it was late one night. The driver of the car made a U-turn on one of the highways, and he was pulled over by police. I was sitting in the back as a passenger, and my stomach just dropped. My heart was beating really fast because there were so many traffic stops in, the, in America that turned fatal. I mean, I was literally terrified. And then the driver got out of the car <laughs> in Ghana, and he started waving to the police officer, which again is terrifying because here we're taught, don't move, don't get out of the car. And the, the driver explained to the police officer, look, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm lost, I didn't know my way. And this is what happened. The police officer said, I believe you and I forgive you, go about your way. And when the driver got back in the car, I felt a sense of relief, but also this, like a real, real awakening that this is what I thought to myself. This is how traffic stops should turn out. Right. They don't have to turn out fatal. Someone doesn't have to get shot. And so it really got me thinking about what does it mean to live in a place where you feel freedom, where there's um, decreased fear from being shot by police for making a U-turn or running a red light or mm. running so a stop sign. You found people who were either moving or talking about moving to to Africa, and, but also to Jamaica. Um, but I, one of the things that struck me, and it's there in the story that you just told, it is there in the story of the couple who moved to South Africa, is that you think you know how tense you are here in this country. You think you know how much tension you carry around in your body and your soul. And then you go someplace where there isn't that amount of tension. It turns out it was even worse when it was here, right? Like the, this couple who moved to South Africa, they say, basically, they didn't really realize how not free uh, they felt. And I think the husband said he, he would sob on the airplane any time he had to go back to the U.S. for business or whatever. Coming back to South Africa, he'd be just sobbing with relief. That's true. So the, the couple that run, runs this YouTube channel called The Real South Africa, the, the wife told me, Latasha Platten told me that when she moved, finally moved to South Africa, she felt that it was the first time she felt, she realized that she was really, really living. And her husband, Mark Platten, who actually is a former Secret Service officer here in this country, he protected Biden uh, as vice president and others. He moved. He told me that when... You know, you know, people come and they take them on tours of South Africa. Many visitors, when they return to, to the airport, they cry. They cry. They don't want to return to the States. And that's when it hits them. It hits them that they're living under this stress. Yeah. Mark Blatton says whenever he has to return to the States, he literally sobs, shaking, sobbing, mm. because he doesn't want to give up that feeling of freedom um, that he's experiencing in South Africa. So, Deneen Brown, how has this affected you? How is this affecting your thoughts about your own future? Yeah, so um, I'm considering seriously, you know, moving um, uh, to a place where I can feel freedom. I really want to experience what it's like to have freedom from racism, freedom from oppression. I want to know what freedom feels like to not only to not be the only black person in a room or at a meeting or even having to have a conversation with people where I have to explain what racism is or what, what the history 
of racism in this country is. I just want, I want to be free to exist as a human and experience the full range of human experiences rather than um, being here where I feel othered oftentimes and also excluded from the very definition of humanity. So I am exploring different places to move to and to live, to experience that freedom that I desire. I hope you get it. And I wish we were giving it to you here. Uh, Deneen Brown is a local enterprise reporter at The Washington Post and an associate professor at the University of Maryland. Her article, The Case for Leaving America to Escape Racism, uh, is what attracted uh, us to her. Uh, so we're going to, first of all, reluctantly say goodbye, uh, but also we're going to end this segment uh, with uh, another person we talked to. Her name is Carol Hallberg. You'll meet her now. She has moved to Portugal starting in February of 2002. So one of the things we wanted to do is talk to as many people as possible who'd made a decision like this. And so we are quite excited right now to talk to Carol Hallberg, who lived in the United States and decided there was a better place to go. And that place was Portugal. So first of all, Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Colin. I appreciate it. So this was something that you had kind of begun planning out in some detail, right? You had the idea that you were going to retire somewhere. You weren't sure whether it was going to be the United States or abroad. And then a whole series of, as they say, unfortunate events radically affected your decision. That's absolutely true. I lived um, the last part of my career before retiring. I lived in Connecticut for about a decade. Uh, before that, I'm from California. And when I looked at my retirement, uh, Social Security, 401k, et cetera, I worked in nonprofit my entire life, so I was not super wealthy. And I looked at where I wanted to live in the United States and in the world. And ultimately, I knew it was not the United States. Yeah. Now, one of the things that helped push you even more in that direction is you had, while you were touring around, essentially looking at places you might retire to, you had your own health crisis, but it was a health crisis here in the United States. I cleaned out my household in Connecticut, and I became what's called a digital nomad. Mm -hmm. And I traveled for about four years. And during that, the course of that, it was I traveled the US, I traveled Europe, and I was looking for where my forever home was going to be. And at that time, I was planning to buy a place wherever I ended up being. But I was going through Virginia on my way to Colorado. And I ended up in the emergency ward. And then I ended up in the hospital for three months in Virginia, very close to dying, couple of surgeries, not going to get into all that. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I had a major medical event, I am single. I had already retired. I had Medicare. I had excellent insurance on top of the Medicare. And I still ended up in those three months spending every penny of my retirement savings. Mm. And I ended up with just my Social Security. And that's it. Right. I'm so sorry, first of all, that that happened. And it must have been exceptionally stressful to have it happen in a place that wasn't really home by any stretch of the imagination. So this sort of pushed you, it redoubled your sense, right, that maybe there was a better place with a better way of handling a lot of different things, including medical care. Absolutely. But it also solidified the fact that I literally could not live comfortably in the U.S. on my Social Security. 
It just wasn't a, real, a possibility. I would have been impoverished. So I then really focused on Europe and I did a lot of actual research, not just Googling, but really digging deep. And I visited Portugal several times and fell in love with the country, fell in love with the politics of the country, fell in love with the culture and social network here over other even European countries and settled on Portugal and then moved here in 2020. So there's a, a lot that I, I want to ask you about here and, and maybe just begin with, uh, we should say a little bit about where you are. You're in a medieval town in Portugal and you're finding, among other things, that it is affordable, in, both in terms of what the medical care costs and just what your daily costs are. Yes, yes. In order to be an immigrant, which is what I am, I'm an immigrant to Portugal, in order to get the, the residency visa, you have to have private medical insurance here in Portugal. So my full coverage medical insurance that includes house calls by the doctor costs me around $49, $50 a month. <laughs> I'll just let that sink in yeah. for the listeners. However, I have only used my private medical insurance once when I had an earache, a doctor came out and helped me because I don't own a car here. Mm. I have had to use the emergency room twice. And I went to the doctor, regular doctor at the Centre de Saúde, which is the health center. And uh, basically you go in and the doctor talks with you about everything under the sun. There's no rush. You mm. And they ask 10 times, is there anything else I can help you with? I've had a full physical, all the tests that you can get possibly for a physical for an older person, two emergency room visits, and a few other things. And my cost has been zero. That's a, that is amazing. So, I mean, you're striking me right in my heart because my doctor retired a few months ago and I seem not to have a doctor anymore, let alone, you know, the cost of it and everything. So right. there's a lot else to talk about here. But maybe the, before we get into sort of some of the attitudes, some of the ways that Portuguese people think about the world and the way that they live, let's just say a little bit more about being kind of an expat. Now, for example, you're still able to vote in the United States, right? And I think you're involved with an organization called Democrats Abroad. Tell us about that. Yes, I am involved with Democrats Abroad Portugal, but that's part of a that's a chapter of a larger Democrats Abroad that covers uh, all of Europe and North Africa. And I work with them to help people understand how to register to vote, to make sure they vote, that their vote goes through and help people here be informed about whatever's going on in the US uh, that they might have to vote about. Mm. So I work with that organization. I'm very proud of that organization quite a bit. I vote in Massachusetts now because that's where my US address is now. Mm. But it's very important to immigrants from the U.S. to vote because what happens in the U.S. affects our families that we left behind, mm. but it also affects us. There are questions about how we pay our taxes and, and who we pay our taxes to, income taxes. There are questions about our status if we decide to have two passports. There's just a lot of things that go on in the U.S. that do directly affect immigrants to anywhere else in the world from the U.S. 
In Portugal, I'm not allowed to, as an American, I'm not allowed to vote in Portugal for Portuguese elections. The Brits are, other people are, but not Americans. You are now at a point where you're hopeful that other people that you care about, your son, your friends, will follow your example and and maybe move to Portugal, actually. Oh, gosh, Colin, I think hopeful is too light a word. (laughs) And I'm not, I love Portugal, and I would like them to move to Portugal because of that love I have for Portugal. But I honestly, mostly just want the people I care about to get out of the USA. I listen and I talk with my Portuguese friends, and they have been saying this to me for multiple years, that everything that is happening in the U.S. reminds them of what happened here. And I've spoken to people in Spain and in Hungary that go, yes, every earmark is there. We recognize what's happening, and you're losing your country. And without exception, when I talk to Europeans, not just Portuguese, but Europeans will, they'll get this sad look on their face because they love the USA. Hmm. But they'll look so sad and they'll just, and they'll just, they'll, they'll touch you and they'll go, I'm so sorry for what's happening in your country. Hmm. And I feel, I use the analogy of uh, frogs. When you put frogs in hot water, and you start and you heat the water slowly, they don't try and jump out of the pot because they don't notice they're being boiled alive. And I don't mean to cause a ruckus with your audience, but there's a number of us that are looking at our home from a distance, from a thousand feet up, if you will, and seeing that that's what's happening in the USA. Yeah, I don't think you're going to cause a ruckus saying that. I think that's – and it's very much the purpose of us doing this particular episode too. Is yeah. It's kind of exactly that idea. Hey, I just want to end maybe with kind of – I mean a sense of the niceness of your life right now. You are enjoying this town. As I understand that there's about 30,000 people. About 1,000 of those people yeah. are English-speaking immigrants. And I don't know. What's a day and a night like? I, you mentioned that you could go out to dinner and have a very lovely locally grown or, or fished meal rather inexpensively. Yes, I can I can walk down to the corner and have a lunch or dinner that includes soup, salad, entree, dessert, wine, coffee. I think I'm leaving something out. <laughs> and it'll it's costs nine dollars. Oh my goodness. Uh, and it's really good wine. Portuguese wine is a secret. It's so good. Um I live in a three-bedroom home in probably the most ideal location in town. Uh, My backyard is the Seven Hills Park with miles and miles of hiking in the forest. And my front yard is what's called the Verse Grande, which is a huge plaza. We just did a 10 day music festival here on that plaza. And I could watch everything from my balcony and listen to everything from my balcony. I have, it's my home's a standalone home. It's 800 years old but it has some modern features. It has a bathroom and so on. (laughs) I pay $500 a month rent Mm. for my house. My electric bill, the highest my electric has ever been, I think was $25, maybe $30 for my electricity. So what's not to like? I mean, you're really making me What's not to like? I mean, it's just a, a lovely place. And there's no snow for those people in Connecticut. 
Right. One of my criteria was I never wanted to shovel snow or slip on ice ever again in my life. So <laughs> Portugal worked out for that as yeah. well. Well, you know, Carol Halberg, you had some bad breaks a- along the way to this, but it sounds like you've arrived in a good place and that you're happy, but very, very worried for your old country. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. I, I think it's both troubling and inspiring. Thank you. And I will say that there, the statistics for Portugal at least looks like there's been a 300% increase in requests for immigration from the U.S. in the last year. Well, if people hear this interview, it's going to be 600%. Uh, <laughs> but thanks very much for talking to me today. Carol Hallberg. Certainly. And Thank go, you. Go have some nice Lulas Grelladas and uh, <laughs> look at you. <laughs> whatever, whatever else is out there. All right. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. That was Carol Hallberg. She left a long and full life in the United States for a life in Portugal. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Yeah, you knew we were going to play The Clash at some point. All right, so we are still talking about this, this whole idea of... And, and by the way, this is a thing that's very hard to pin down. You'd think that there would be a lot of statistics kept about all this, but it's actually officially kind of unclear, and Janine Brown had the same experience. Like, how many people who are U.S. citizens are moving abroad, living abroad, whatever? It's, it's a harder number to get at. So... Um, Right now, we're going to talk to Jennifer Stevens, uh, International Living's executive editor. You can see all of their stuff uh, at internationalliving.com, including how to move out of the U.S. Uh, before we bring uh, Jennifer on board, let's hear from one of our other listeners, social media friends, whatever. This is Steve from West Hartford. Ever since Trump won the GOP nomination in 2016, I've considered moving back to Canada, where I was born. Then and still now, I think about how people with the options to leave Europe in the 1930s face this quandary. I stare at my Canadian passport and try and figure out if I feel the time is now or not yet. I do believe that the U.S. is at a precipice. Did those that decided to weigh out European fascism regret it? Will I? What am I waiting for? President DeSantis? The complete collapse of the Supreme Court? What will it take? Having the option to leave brings much anguished hand-wringing. 
Stevens, Jennifer Stevens from International Living. This is probably a pretty familiar narrative to you. In fact, one thing that you do know is that there are up spikes in the article that I just talked about, how to move out of the U.S. on the International Living website at certain times, including some of the times that guy was just talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we see we saw a thousand percent increase in traffic to our how to move out of the U.S. content um, in the immediate aftermath of like Roe v. Wade verdict, for example, from the Supreme Court. And so we definitely have seen those movements. Um, and, and we just we just a couple of weeks ago were gathered with a, several hundred of our readers and our editors and correspondents from around the world and and kind of at a conference to show people you know what they need to know if they're interested in moving out of this US and and it was definitely a theme i think you know people i don't think you necessarily wake up one morning and say that's it i'm leaving and then leave 2 days later there probably are a few people who <laughs> maybe have the bandwidth and the flexibility to do that but i would say in our experience in my experience most people who there are both pushback factors and pull factors, right? So there are some people who maybe have thought over the years that maybe they you know studied abroad when they were in school or they love to travel and they've thought, oh, God, it would be so nice to to live abroad one day, maybe to retire overseas somewhere affordable and and you know where the weather's good. And then and you know, life gets in the way. And then these events happen, right? These things that give you pause happen. And I think then those folks who've kind of had this idea in the back of their head begin to think, you know what, maybe now's a good time to go. And I think that gentleman who just spoke, um, he he's that's another theme that we're seeing now, this idea, this sort of low, low grade, sometimes not low grade worry. You know, what is this? What's what's happening here in the States? What is this going to mean for my kids and my grandkids? And is it time for me to maybe you know, create some kind of escape route. So it might be that everything's going to be fine. And I just go and enjoy just like Carol Hallberg was talking about her life in Portugal. I just go and enjoy this, you know, this great existence and wherever I end up in Portugal or someplace else. Um, or maybe I need to put a path in place that my kids and my grandkids, you know, could follow should they need to. So um, it's a little bit of both that pull and that push. Right. I mean, I find myself thinking, A, as Steve, the caller, talked about just the rise of European fascism and the people who waited too long to leave. And then in a more fictional and contemporary sense, you know, sort of Mar Margaret Atwood does a really great job of sort of showing you what it's like, you know, when you have waited too long. And suddenly, as you know, like in her case, a woman's credit card suddenly doesn't work anymore and something like that. So there's also two different groups of people who have two different sets of needs here. One of them are people my age who are looking for a place maybe to retire. And then there are the people who are younger than me who need jobs. And those are kind of two different classes of possible relocators. Yes. And the good news for the younger people is that it's becoming more um, it's becoming easier to do than it used to be. I mean, we've international living. We've been writing about this idea of, of living abroad for since 1979, right? A long time. But we often a lot of our coverage has been focused on retirees because a they have the flexibility to go, and um, b other countries often wouldn't allow somebody to work in their country to take a job from a local, as it were, right? And so it was harder to um take to 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 go and work in another country but it is getting easier in part because of this idea um that Carol mentioned of digital nomadism right this idea that so many people in the US today have much more flexibility than they had um in in their jobs they don't necessarily have to be at a desk in an office every day and so as a result 
they're able to take that, you know, take their laptop and take their job with them wherever. If they don't have to be in the office, they could be on a beach in Mexico where the cost of living is half or less than it is in, in Washington or in New York or in, you know, in Connecticut somewhere. And, and so countries are realizing that they, they're, they're honestly, there's a sort of a, this, there's a, a wealth that they could tap into, right? And so they're making it easier by offering new visas for folks who uh, will work remotely. So you don't necessarily get permission to work, have a job, you know, hold a job in that country that you're in, but they're quite happy to have you come, give you a longer term visa and have you come and stay and do your remote work and spend your money in the local economy. So that's become a lot easier. Just in the last sort of 18 months, we've seen lots of countries um, begin to put those, those digital nomad visas in place. So as we were be kind of just collecting opinions and testimony and stuff like that from our listeners and people who we know on social media, you know, a lot of people kind of describe wanting to do this, thinking about doing this. But it's complicated because they have family members who maybe, you know, they would need to take with them who who don't want to do it or have, you know, medical needs and would make it hard to move. And, you know, I mean, everybody's got a complicated life and it's hard for a lot of people just to pull up stakes and, and move. Um I'm going to ask you, I don't even know if you know the answer to this question. It's kind of a dumb question. But in addition to all that, I have a dog, you know. If I wanted to move to Portugal, like, how am I going to get my dog to Portugal? So this must be something that comes up. It comes up all the time. And um, you can do it is the, the short answer. You can do it and you can do it pretty much any place, you just have to follow the rules. So it's not as complicated as you think. Um, we have one of our, our regular contributors. She lives in Ecuador, and I think she moved with three dogs and two cats, or some crazy mm-hmm. number. And you know, there are services. She was she's in Ecuador. So there are services that will move your pets for you, right? So um, it's not as complicated as you. It's not a deal killer. Put it that way. Um, and people do it all the time. So there are rules. Different countries have different rules. You just have to, you know, sort out what the rules are. If you go to internationalliving.com, we have articles on our website about how to move with your pets with suggestions for where to get more information and, you know, what what the process is. We're going to run out of time pretty fast here. But like the, the article that I keep referencing, and we'll link to it from our site to your site, How to Move Out of the U.S., I think that mentions some places people are going. Uh, I- and, and Portugal definitely does come up in, in that article, too. But I don't know right now, where are people going? Yeah, people are going quite literally all over the world, but most of our readers, I would say, are going to Europe this year, um, Europe, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. Europe makes a lot of sense right now because of the parity with the, with the euro and the dollar. It's just like the whole continent is on sale. <laughs> you know, a country that's using the euro as their currency. So it's making it a lot more, it was already more affordable than the U.S. to live day to day, but it's even more affordable now. Um, Latin America, so so in Europe, just to, to be more specific, we're seeing people going to Portugal, to France, to Spain, to Italy primarily. Um, in Latin America, lots of folks are interested in Panama. It's below the hurricane zone, so you get all the beautiful beaches and the nice weather. Um, but you don't have to worry about those humongous storms the way you do a little bit farther north. Also, the healthcare in Panama is excellent. And so um, they use the U.S. dollar. It makes it sort of easy from a logistical standpoint. And so Panama is a place people are looking at. Um, they also Panama also has a really um, a really attractive visa for retirees and others also, not just retirees, that just makes it extremely um, user-friendly and easy to go. You don't need to sort of show you have a large income or anything like that to, to qualify. So that's that's one place that people are looking at. Costa Rica, 
Mexico, Ecuador, mm. um, all of those countries have, you know, different benefits depending on what you're looking for. Um, in Southeast Asia, people are looking at Thailand and Malaysia, for example. Um, the the thing to do, I I always tell tell people is we talk about it as sort of profiling yourself. What is it that is important to you? If healthcare is really important, if being closer, relatively close to to family and friends is important to you, um, you know, these are things you what, what climate you want. These are the kinds of uh, things you need to consider, and that'll help you narrow down what your options are. And, and that's kind of our our mission in International Living, where, where we try to help people. They have someone might have a vision of a place in their mind, and we help them find that place on the map in the real world. All right, and, Jennifer, and show Steve, them how to get there. Jennifer Stevens, we have to go, not not to Thailand or anything. Although, hi, <laughs> hello to Brett in Thailand. Brett listens every day in Thailand to our show, and hello to Nessa in Santiago, Chile. Jennifer Stevens is an international living's executive editor. Thanks for visiting with us. We have more of this show to come, so stay with us. There's some people to thank today, as there always are. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson. She is the producer of this episode with help from the estimable Jacob Gannon. So finally, we're going to continue this conversation about people weighing the question about whether to continue living here, whether this is a viable place for people to make a life. Uh, Wajahat Ali is a Daily Beast columnist, public speaker, and author of Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on Becoming American, he re- recently wrote the article, Is It Time for Me to Leave America? So, Wash, uh, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. And so this is a really fascinating article and at times a, a rather moving one, but it, maybe you'd like to begin by just kind of summarizing the overall thrust of it. So the overall thrust is I was born and raised in this country in the year of Empire Strikes Back, 1980, to immigrant Pakistani Muslim parents. <laughs> Went to all boys Jesuit Catholic high school, lived in diverse California, Bay Area, have endured some interesting challenges. And, you know, I've never thought about ever leaving, but I'm now a father. I have three young kids and I've seen a shift in my country, a shift that I warned about and feared about since the election of Donald Trump. And unfortunately, this cancer has metastasized where I call it's the death rattle of white supremacy, which has transformed into a death march, both here and abroad. And... Ultimately, as a parent, and anyone who's listening who's a parent, the way we're wired is we think about security for our family, right? Our kids. And even though I end the the, the essay, Colin, saying that I'll stay and fight, I did say I will, I'll be open to the idea if, God forbid, we have to leave, uh, you know, should we leave this country that I call home, uh, if only for the safety and security of my family? And you would assume that, oh, it's only other Muslims or black folks talking like this. But after that article came out, I got so many messages and I got invited to programs such as yours where just people, regular folks, average folks born and raised in this country, not just. And by the way, immigrants are also average folks. But, you know, the people you don't assume the what we call in America, the average Americans, the Rust Belt, white folks, even white folks were saying, yeah, we're thinking about this. So it's touching a nerve. Uh, that I think people are having this conversation. And 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 I have a co-host of the podcast that I host. She's a daughter of Jamaican immigrants, a black woman. And she's like, if you're not having this conversation, especially as a person of color, 
it's it's a type of malpractice. Like she says, everyone I know has at least entertained it. And it again, goes back to the fact that you have to love a country that doesn't love you sometimes. And and what do you do to protect your family when the president, the ex-president, calls you rapists and criminals and says you come from asshole countries? And the entire GOP now is in the mirror image of this racist Bulgarian. What's going to happen to the country? And we have the elections coming up. So that, that was the, the, the foundation of the piece, the motivation for it. But I do end on the fact, personally, I'm willing to stay and fight for democracy. Right. So I want to circle back to some of those things you just brought up here. But I do want to say that in some ways, the kind of hair up on the back of my neck piece of that uh, line in the piece, and it's kind of heartbreaking, too, is your father begging you, I think you said, to have an exit strategy. My father came here after 1965, the Immigration Nationality Act. He came here in 1966 as a young student from Pakistan. He has endured everything you can imagine, even the war on terror. And never did my father ever say, you know what, we should think about leaving America. The past two, three years, though, however, for the first time, he's been very proactive and in at least making a plan. And my father is not really hyperbolic on this, right? Like he's not one of those people, oh, if George W. Bush wins again, I'm going to go to Canada. This is the first time I've ever heard him really double down on this. And for him, at this stage in his life, he says, you know, forget about me. I've lived a rich, full life. This is about our grandbabies, right? This is about those kids. Because this country, the way it's trending, the way it's headed, the people are going to be in power, I think is going to be bad for Americans, but it's going to be especially bad for Muslims and people of color. And then you have to think, is it worth it? And so my father is the one who, since Trump's election, especially I think in the last three or four years, has said it, it would be foolish for us not to actually have an exit plan. Maybe not exit, but if you need to you know, leave Dodge ASAP, you should leave Dodge. And it's interesting that another friend of mine whose parents are uh, Russian Jews who came here as refugees, uh, you would look at them and say, oh, white folks, but they're Jews. Same situation, you know, came here as immigrants, built themselves up, have had a good life. They're having this conversation. And for them, it's the worry of anti-Semitism. So the fact that you have, you know, generations now saying this, and the fact that, you know, someone like my dad who's been here now for the majority of his life, who has seen the 60s, the 70s, Reagan, war on terror, personal tragedies, is saying this means that, and he's not the only one, means that there's something in the air, Colin. There, there's something in the water, and the water isn't tasty. Right. And so there's things in your piece that are kind of specific, as you're just suggesting right now, to, to specific minority groups. Uh, you bring up the fact that, you know, Trump openly said, I think Islam hates us uh, and the complete and total ban on, on Muslims. But there's other things in your piece that apply to everybody, right? I mean, the, the way in which uh, our percentage of the world's population and our deaths from COVID are just completely out of whack. You know, we just we have more cases, more deaths than we have any business having. And this due to a failed public health strategy, the circulation of untruths uh, mm-hmm. about public health. Uh, you talk about the mass shootings, the the incredible availability and, and, and prevalence of firearms and especially automatic weapons all over the place. These are things that would give anybody pause, right? Well, exactly. And that's why the response has not just been from folks of color, just people, white folks, elders, immigrants, Muslims. They're like, yeah, climate change. When you have one of the two political parties that doesn't believe in climate change and when you have right wing hacks in the Supreme Court are perfectly fine gutting regulation, then that affects all of us. You have an ongoing pandemic 
where United States, you know, like you said, 1 million people, and that's a low number, have died in the United States. Well, what happens during the next pandemic? Guns. Uh, we have more guns than people in the United States of America. And speaking about children, you know, uh, my kids went to school for the first time a couple of months ago, Colin, because they were virtual homeschooled because my daughter had uh, survived stage four cancer and it was a pandemic. But I dropped my kids off at school. And what should have been just a pure, innocent memory, I remember a huge fear in my head as I was dropping them off was, well, what do I do if there's a mass shooting? Mm-hmm. And I'm not the only one. Other parents are like, yeah, that we we think about this all the time. That's not normal, Colin, to drop your kid off at school and be like, huh, I really hope that, you know, I really hope they have some good escape routes and drills for shooting. And, and it's so weird to me because when I was growing up, we only had fire drills, right? I don't know what a shooting drill is. And so a couple of years ago, you know, when we were thinking about having kids, when my, my friends who had kids were saying, yeah, shooting drills, I'm like, excuse me, what are you talking about? They're like, yeah, man, schools now do shooting drills. So shooting drill is now a common occurrence in the United States of America because the fact that we have normalized mass shootings. So you take that, the fact that Republicans are, are openly saying they're coming after Social Security and Medicare and they want to dismantle Obamacare, they have no idea of what to replace it with, probably privatize it, you know, tax cuts for the rich, income inequality, climate change, gun violence, the rise of white supremacy. And then you're like, huh, I love this country, but I also like surviving a little bit more. Right. And, you know, Waj, uh, a few minutes ago, you said uh, talk, drop, about dropping your kids off at school and you said I talked about those feelings and you said that's not normal. And my immediate reaction was, unfortunately, it is normal. That's it, right. has, it has that's become right. normal. Things that should be drastically abnormal have become normal. So let's get over to those. So the one thing we haven't mentioned so far is the thing that really plays into the kind of stay and fight question. And that is whether we have a functioning democracy, whether, in fact, you can fight in a meaningful way, whether you're playing a baseball game, which will not be decided by who scores the most runs, right? I mean, stay and fight means you feel like there's some environment in which you can function as a fighter. Well, that's exactly it, right? Everyone's now worried about the midterms that are coming up and everyone I hope votes and everyone I hope votes responsibly for the party that actually, despite the flaws, protects your rights. Uh, And that's not the Republicans, by the way. but there'll be a day after. And so what I'm worried about is Wednesday, Colin. Mm-hmm. Because suppose, miraculously, and I don't think it's going to happen, uh, Democrats hold on to both houses, uh, or excuse me, uh, Senate and the House, or they hold on to one chamber. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with a movement, a radicalized, weaponized right-wing movement that's not going to give up, Colin, right? That they're, As of today, right, before, uh, you know, right as we're uh, taping this, a report came out that Republicans are trying to overturn mail-in ballots in, in three battleground states because they feel like the advantage is going to Democrats and everyone's saying, oh, that's voter suppression, right? And you have a majority of the Republican candidates who are election deniers who are going to be elected. That's like when the criminals are in the, the judge and the jury and they're going to try to impeach Biden and they believe the big lie. And so what we're going to have is a dysfunctional government or continued minority rule by a by a radicalized and weaponized right-wing minority that's playing for all the marbles, right? So as I've set this up, people are like, oh, wow, thanks for depressing me, Watch. That's awesome. <laughs> Let me just go vomit and punch myself in the mouth. But the reason why I'm mentioning this is even if Democrats win or lose, the threat is there. And the long-term strategy to deal with that, and the one positive that we have, which is a big positive, is the majority. We have the numbers. But the numbers have to organize at a local level, at a state level, at a national level. And I think that's going to be the challenge moving ahead, Colin, is are people going to tap out, which they might, become apathetic and live in these other countries where you have a sham of democracy and everyone's going to be out for themselves? Maybe, maybe. But what we saw in Kansas, 
what we saw with the Women's March, what we saw with the George Floyd protests is that there's something in America, the American DNA, the American psyche, that once in a while wakes up and says enough is enough. And my hope is that as things get worse, instead of things getting more and more worse, it will finally mobilize the majority to fight back because I don't care what happens during the midterms, folks. Come Wednesday, the fight is real. They're not stopping. All right, this will be my last question. You kind of preemptively answered it just now, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Somebody Please. listening to a lot of this interview would think, oh, this dude's leaving. <laughs> so what is it? What is it that you love enough or what is it that you believe in enough so that at least for the time being, and, and I realize this is a question you will doubtless come back to uh, a few times in the course of, you say, the next 10 years, but what is it that's keeping you here? It's my home. I was born and raised here. I married my wife here. I raised my kids here. This is the home that I know and love. And even though the country I fight for doesn't always fight for me, and even though the country I love doesn't always love me, there's something really beautiful and exceptional about this idea of America, this dream of America, the fact that I can even be on your show right now, the fact that uh, you know you can have a Barack Obama as president or a Kamala Harris, the fact that my parents did come here as immigrants and built themselves up. You know, in China, there's a lot of Chinese folks calling, right? Uh, in America, uh, despite all its many flaws, it's a multiracial democracy that in the long run has had to stretch and expand to include the rest of us, which in part is why we're seeing the white lash and the backlash. And so it's up to me, because I'm a father, to keep stretching and pushing and expanding this country so my kids in that generation, Colin, that generation that's coming up, they can be the co-protagonists of the story. That's the inheritance I want to give them. I don't want to leave them with, oh, you'll be a great victim and you have to suffer. No, uh, the, the narrative I want to leave them with is you too are American. You too deserve to dream big. And you too have a seat at the table, which is why I stay in fight. What a great answer. What a great way to end this conversation. And in fact, this show episode, Wajahat Ali is Daily Beast columnist where he wrote, Is it time for me to leave America? Also the author of Go Back to Where You Came From and other helpful recommendations on becoming American. Thanks to you, sir. Thanks to the rest of you for listening. Thanks to everybody who helped with today's show. There's a place for us.